All right. What's going on? Not much. Making beer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, this, this is Luke Dow. I'm Andonetti. You're listening to this podcast, so I assume you know that. Um, start off. Um, tell me about someone who you think is creative that doesn't think that they are creative. Hmm. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, I think uh, my dad, actually. He's a very um, somewhat straight-laced, pretty serious um, person. I mean, he laughs and has jokes and everything, but uh, he was a school teacher most of his life, taught science and, and junior elementary school. Um, but he spent a lot of time out in, in the woodshed building things. And by the time we sold our house and moved to the next house, probably the 50% of the house had been remade in some way, um, in oftentimes providing pretty creative solutions to, um, to tricky structural problems or making a new bedroom in the, in the attic, hmm. um, you know, building a staircase by reading magazines. Wasn't, we didn't have the web, so you couldn't just look up how to do this stuff. So <laughs> there's a lot of trial and error. <laughs> Encyclopedia, like YouTube is great. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as a school teacher, he would often, I think at one point, he built a, a 25 foot long wooden skeleton of a dinosaur for uh, modeling it off a, you know, a one foot scale model. Um, and so built it for the kids and, and, and wow. to, to, to do all these things. And I think. He doesn't consider himself creative in any in any way. Probably, he would say he's the opposite. But um, you have to be creative to even think that that's a good idea to do. Yeah. <laughs> Get halfway through, it's like, all right, we're gonna make it through. Yeah. All right. Um, the point of this podcast, um, it's called Making Fire. The point of it is just to kind of get a sense of what creativity is and where it comes from. And it's a process podcast more than anything. And I'm trying to effectively figure out by talking to people and by doing like research on my own like where does it come from is creativity something that people are born with and there's gifted people who happen to be creative or and if you're not creative you're just you I don't know you build um, or if any if everyone is creative and it's just something you can tap into um, so that I'm just trying to figure this out I don't I have an opinion but I don't know that there necessarily has to be a right or wrong answer to that sure so Start off with you. You're Luke Dow. You, give me like your background. Because my understanding is like you run a lab at NYU, but give me your background for more formal. Sure. Less formal. Uh, how, how back do you want me to start? How far back? Um, go all the way back to middle school. You can do like professional or creative background. Okay. Um, I think those are a little intertwined actually. So, um, well, we don't have middle school in Australia, but um, elementary school, going into high school, um, I was going to be a professional tennis player. No, no questions about it. Um, and it wasn't until probably midway through high school, which is, I guess, similar midway through high school here, um, where I realised that was never going to happen. And so I uh, spent a little bit more time at school, focusing on schoolwork. Um, but I was always much more interested in... in drawing and, and kind of graphic design um, than anything else. And I liked science and it was interesting, but it wasn't an early passion or anything for me. I spent most of my days playing tennis. I'm listening to you, go ahead. I'm just making um, sure that's recording. 
And then when I wasn't, I would be at home drawing something. I spent a lot of time uh, in the woodwork shop with my dad, building things, build you know mini cricket bats and things. I built a build step stools and things for my sisters that they needed. Um, almost cutting off half my thumb in the process of one of those. But um, then I got to, I guess, mid high school, and I had to choose subjects that were going to be you know, what I would focus on to then get into university. And initially, I tried to do a lot of subjects around graphic design, and I tried to do the sort of AP level graphic design courses, but funnily enough, they just didn't fit my schedule. And so, um, and I say, and I liked science, so I took more science courses in chemistry. And then, just before my senior year, um, I stumbled into our careers room, which was really just leftover furniture and a cabinet of pamphlets from universities, which no, it wasn't collated. It wasn't even we weren't even really told it was there. And I found an, an advertisement for um, a course called biomedical science. And it was the first year they were offering it at Melbourne University. And it looked really cool. And it wasn't, um, it was, bi it was medic medically focused, but it didn't lead, your path wasn't led to become a doctor. It was meant to become biomedical research. And it wasn't a general biology course that would go into anything. So it had enough focus to interest me. Um, but I knew at that point I didn't want to be a doctor, uh, in, a medical doctor okay. to treat patients. And so um, I found out a little bit, a little bit more about it um, and got in. Really enjoyed the course, you know, got more and more passionate about um, discovery, probably more than anything. And I think everyone that goes into research science has the background goal of, of making the world a better place or helping people with disease, but that doesn't sustain you day to day. It can't because the progress is slow. And if you relied on having the big discovery every day to keep you enthusiastic, um, you would fall by the wayside very quickly. And so the, the sort of day-to-day -day passion for me is discovery, learning something new, um, and trying to understand very challenging problems that um, we haven't been able to decipher in hundreds of years. And, um, and the, hopefully the goal, the outcome of that is that we can treat patients more effectively and, and, and help people with cancer. Um, so, but I, I really enjoy the day-to-day understanding of, of the world uh, on a very micro scale for us. And so um, I continued to do that and I did a PhD in Australia and then moved to the US in 2008 to do a, what's called a postdoc. It's the job after you do your PhD in science. Um, still a sort of training position. And I, I moved to Long Island, New York to Cold Spring Harbor Labs, which is a very old, um, well-established well research science. Um, entity. They do cancer and neuroscience and plant science. Um, and, and worked in a lab there of a, a sort of world-renowned group that was building mouse models to understand cancer biology. And um, that really resonated with me because we were, we were building you know, little mimics of, of human disease. And there was lots of ways to approach it, but um, and so I guess there was some creativity that came into that process. How do we do this best and, and how do we make this work? in our favor. And um, you know that the, the postdoc process can be a, an attrition phase for a lot of scientists. It's challenging. It's a little bit cutthroat at times. And a lot of people decide that that's not what they want to do. Um, I was fortunate. Things worked pretty well. 
So there was a lot of luck involved. And I had the opportunity to, to start a lab and that um, was awesome. It was a, a chance to sort of lead the direction of, of and, and mentor people um, to, to take on those questions and to choose the questions you want to, you think are most important. So now it's been almost five years since I started at Cornell and uh, things are going well. Okay. And it's, it's great. We have about eight, nine people in the lab um, and I, I enjoy the mentoring. Um, I enjoy problem solving. I was worried that I was going to lose that now because I don't spend much time at the bench doing the, the actual experiments. But um, now there's eight or nine people doing those things and, and I work with them to troubleshoot and plan the next experiment. So it's actually been very positively um, encouraging that, that switching to from being at the bench doing work to, to being in the office and guiding a team, uh, I still get the sense of discovery and excitement and, and have that problem solving um, angle to the job, which keeps me interested. Okay, I'm gonna come back to that difference between those two things in a second. To go back really quick, so something that, when I talked to you, I talked to you about this originally in like 2016, 2017, something that you said that always resonated with me was that how you said creativity and science was different, the way you felt about creativity, the way it was like a different feeling between creativity with science and creativity with like graphic design and like woodwork and so like what did do you still feel that or what if you do what does that mean what do you mean by that i think in all of those things creativity well it's very hard to define which is why you're doing this podcast um but the ability to be creative or to make new things maybe is that if that's the way you can define creativity make something that's new that hasn't been there before um and outwardly that seems like creativity I think the more I think about science, the more it is a little bit like woodwork or any, any kind of um, development of, of something in that you, you, are, you become exponentially better at it the more you understand and know your tools. And tools in graphic design, you know, how many different ways you can draw a line, how many different types of medium can you use to create an image. In woodwork, it's how many different tools you know how to use well and, and where you can apply them maybe in a slightly different way than, than most people do. And in science, it's really understanding how well each of your technologies works, whether it's engineering a new mouse or, or cloning a new um, vector to, to deliver something to a cell. There's lots of ways these things can fail and you become very good over time at knowing how to avoid those issues and how to apply them in a, in a new way. And often it's the, the breakthroughs come when you figure out, you know, wow, we could use this uh, thing X to apply it to this problem Y. And that may be not the dogma, um, and you may need to tweak a few things and, and bash your head against the wall for a while to figure it out. Um, but I'm really, I really believe that the development of those technologies or new ways to do things is what progresses understanding of biology. And so I think the, the creativity for me comes in how can we build something new to ask a question that wasn't previously possible. Uh, and I do think of it very much in terms of um, 
tools and, and substrates or you know, how we combine those different things. It's kind of like building something new out of, of random blocks of Lego. Um, you know how each of those things can work and can, can go together. Um, and thinking about a new way to do something gives you a totally new product. So just for specification, my understanding, and I don't know who's listening to this, who's going to be listening <laughs> to this one day, like in order to get your own lab, you must have, during your postdoc process, did something that was like creative or innovative or, because I, I don't, maybe it's just like if you do all the work, you check all the boxes, you get it. I don't get the sense, and that never in the sense you get your own lab unless you've done something that's innovative. What was your like creative, what did you do creatively to like allow people to like, oh, we should give this person a lab? Yeah, so I think the thing that probably was what occupied most of my time in in my postdoc was trying to build animal models where we could control the expression of individual genes in any cell or organ in the in the animal. And the reason we do that is because we use a lot of the way we understand biology at this point is we take a, an organism, in this case it's the mouse, and you remove the part. It's kind of the way you would think about understanding a car. Right? You can take a car, you could take out a, a piece and does it fail to work? Does one particular thing in that uh, machine fail to work now? And there you can retro retroactively um, or retrospectively piece together how each component within the, the greater machine works. And so we could do this in mice and we've been able to do it since the 80s to take away a gene of the 24,000 genes in the mouse and then study what happens to that. But there was almost no way to bring that gene back to ask if something goes wrong, can we fix it? Okay. Can we put it back in and make it work again? And this is particularly important in cancer where you have lots of different mutations that accumulate in a cell and we don't really understand how each of those contributes to the disease progressing and ultimately um, killing the patient. And so if we have the ability to go back and put back one of those pieces, could we stop cancer? And so we started building animal models using a, a, a technique called RNA interference where we could suppress the expression of one gene. And we could do it just by giving the mice uh, an antibiotic called doxycycline. And then when you take the doxycycline away, the gene comes back on. And so we could build models that had cancer, and in my case it was colorectal cancer, where this gene called APC is lost in 85% of, of human disease, human cancers. And we showed that you knock, knock down this gene and you get a cancer growing. And you can include other mutations, other well-known oncogenic mutations. But if you bring APC back, the cancer stops and it regresses and it doesn't come back. And um, so this was a, it's, it's not something we could take and give to a patient because we engineered the mice to be able to do this, but it provides us a, a fundamental understanding of where and when the mutations in APC are important for disease to progress. Okay. And so we've taken that finding now to find, try and find ways to, to drug, to, to find a drug that would do a similar thing in a cell as bringing APC back. Um, and so that, we built the platform to do it and then we chose APC as an example to, to test. But you could do this with any of the 24,000 genes in the genome and um, really understand when they're important and whether restoring them after disease onset can be therapeutic 
um, we've, we've, we see it as a way to prospectively test therapeutic targets without doing the 10 years and, and billions of dollars of, of drug development only to find that um, these drugs fail. Um, it's not going to be foolproof, but um, we think we can eliminate some of those failures early on okay. by, by using animals to test those concepts. Okay. Um, just up front, I have a macro level view of what you're saying. I, in order to have like a more micro, to have, I'm honestly probably going to just like rewind, listen to it a couple of times. I'm like, all right, this is because I'm like I have like a va I have like a pretty like okay, I can kind of chat about this in a uh, in like. Uh, cocktail party, but I'm like, I'm, I have to go write this down and make sure I understand what was really going on. It, uh, it's challenging. I mean, the, the lingo um, that comes along with any field is is not really interpretable for a lot of other people. And as you know, my wife's a scientist, so um, she understands a lot of what I say, and um, I don't often find ways to yeah. explain things more simply. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, um, I know Luke through his wife, and I guess I've known you guys reasonably about the same time, uh, yeah. his wife Megan. Um, it, yeah, it's funny. I think part of like just to, between me and you, part of it's just like when you're telling me something, I'm building an image in my head of yeah. like what's going on. And sometimes I'm like, okay, I didn't quite understand this. And so like there's like holes in the image in my head. Mm -hmm. and so like the, the macro level, I'm like, I kind of get a general idea, but I have to go back and fill in the holes to like to see where I'm doing like mental like jumps where it's like, oh, you didn't understand that, you just made this jump. And so that's probably where it's more vague. Um, but that's, that's more about the science than about the creativity. You, you may be thinking that we understand more than we do as well. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's probably somewhere in between. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so you were saying like when most scientists, like when you go into science, you have this idea of like, I wanna make a difference, I wanna change the world. But a lot of like the, the creativity that goes on in science is, is like, it's the grind work because it's not like spectacular. It's always like it's big thing, grind, 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 big thing. What is your process? Because if you're, if you're pretty good at this, so what's your process of like, all right, how do you like start from like, I have a problem and being the creative process as much or as little detail as you want. Uh, I, so one of my favorite things, um, to do at work is sort of stand by the whiteboard, um, with it, whether I'm by myself or with other people, and just brainstorming, breaking down an issue. Uh, I think it usually starts by saying, where do we want to get to? What's the end goal? And then work backwards from there. Um, and it may be, we want to be able to, um, you know, mutate this gene in this cell at this time and measure how it affects how the cells grow compared to when it's not mutated. Um, and then so we have to think, how do we get the mutation? Which cells do we have to use? How can we make those cells behave the way we want to behave in order to introduce these things? Um, and it really, then you start drawing on the collective knowledge, which is where the, the importance of, of other scientists publishing their work and describing what they do you draw on things maybe from slightly different fields or from other examples of where this has where things like this have worked and say, okay, can we make that work for us? If not, what's the limiting factor? And um, I think it's really one of these, you know, solve the maze type questions. It's much easier to go from the end back to the beginning yeah. than it is from the beginning yeah. to the end. Um, and that generally is the way we do it probably without even thinking about it. What's our, what's our end goal? 
and, and how do we get there? And are there steps along the way? This is important in science because it is, it's not something you generally can get done in a day and then know whether it worked. Sometimes these are six month long things. Are there points along the way that we could say, yes, this is working or no, it's not. We need to try something new. Okay. Um, and just like as I was sort of brewing the beer today and trying something new, I was writing down at every step kind of a description of what had happened, not necessarily what I wanted to happen, but what had actually happened because things don't always go exactly the way you want to. Sometimes that leads to an understanding or a discovery that you don't expect. Right? Oh, I forgot to do this one step, but now this other thing worked really well. Um, and that, that's why experience makes a big difference in trying to navigate and, and be effectively creative. We could try all sorts of crazy things in the lab, but to be effective and effectively creative, um, things need to work. And so this sort of collective experience and, and um, um, knowledge from both your own experiences and from, from other people's. Um, so I think I constantly am talking and asking questions. When I was in grad school, when I was a postdoc, I would always be asking questions of other people and what they were doing in their experiment. And it just that I think the being inquisitive is somewhat innate or natural. And you see that in kids very young. Who asks questions a lot and who doesn't? Um, so I don't know if creativity is innate, but I think being inquisitive is. And I think that, for me, leads to the ability to be able to, to do those things. It's interesting. So you mentioned there seems like there's two components that you're working with. Component one is knowing your tools. You have to know your tools and you have to, or you have to know your tools and know your field really well. You don't necessarily have to be a genius, which I'm not even sure what that means, but it's just like if you know your tools and you know your field, you can look and find connections. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have to be curious. And if you have those two things, it's really helpful. Yeah. Like whether or not that's it, I don't, you don't, you're not, you may or may not be saying that, but if you have those two things, you're ahead of the field. Yeah, I think, I mean, and curiosity, I, I don't think you can do it without knowing the tools. I mean, team, you, no one does anything in isolation now. So in general, we, we work in teams and um, we have this combined experience and knowledge of, of the systems. Um, but being curious is really important and probably underestimated to some degree. Um, because without that, you're just kind of doing the next thing. And when you ask questions and probe a little bit deeper, either of yourself or of your experiment or of other people that are doing things, uh, sometimes you find a wrinkle that maybe doesn't make sense or can't be fully explained. It doesn't fit with the protocol that you're following yeah. by the letter. And those often are the things that end up being really interesting and you, you, under, you end up understanding something you didn't even know was there to understand. It's the unknown unknowns. Um, and those ones are, are pretty exciting. We often, you know, we, we follow the, the questions that we're, we're trying to tackle, but um, you just stumble across things and you could either ignore them and move on or you could ask questions of them and probe a little bit deeper. And that um, probably has contributes a lot to the element of, of whatever genius is. It's, we, we usually consider geniuses to be seeing things that others can't, but maybe they just ask the questions that others didn't. This, uh, is, this is an interesting thing because I want, because you've been 
you get you went through like university, you went through a doc, doctoral program, you went to postdoc, you have a, you have a lab, you interviewed people. In your experience, what is okay? So I'm reading this book called Mindset, and it's talking about like how people fix their growth mindset, which is not really it's important, but it's not important to this conversation. What do you think allows some people to be curious and, and not other people? Because is there a certain amount of willingness to fail? So when you're curious, it's like, oh, I'm going to ask a question. It's like, well, you ask a question that's not going to work. Or you're going to maybe look stupid when you ask a question. And some people, I don't know, are more, with, more or less willing to do that. Yeah, um, that's very clear at like, scientific meetings where some people don't want to go and ask a question after a talk because they're a fear of looking like an idiot or not understanding what someone was saying um, and that they missed the point somehow. And, you know, some of that goes back into confidence. Um, and so you have, to, you have to be okay with being wrong and, um, or not understanding. Because if we understood everything, I mean, no one understands everything. <laughs> We'd have if you think you understand everything, <laughs> you clearly don't. Yeah. Um, How's that world peace going for you? <laughs> so I think um, you have to be comfortable with being unbalanced in... Um, in what you do every day. Uh, I've read quite a few articles on this from other scientists, you know, senior scientists that are retros retrospectively looking back on their careers and saying the most important thing is to, to be at peace with um, never being a complete master of your field because you can't be or there's nothing left to learn. And so um, if we pretend that we know it all and there's no questions left to ask, we might as well give it away. And so I think you know, we, every time we do an experiment, we have to look at the data and try and be as impartial as possible and, and not favor our, you know, one desired likely outcome over another and say, what does this mean? What, what does it mean next? Um, what's, what does this tell us about the next experiment we need to do to understand the problem? And you, I think there was a, a grad student in my lab who's going to graduate next month. I think the first two years of her project, every single prediction I made about her experiments was totally wrong. And um, the experiments were right. They were, they were working well. Every time I predicted what was going to happen, I was wrong. Um, and ironically, that gives you more trust in the result of the experiment, usually. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... Um, that's okay, right? You, you reformulate the hypothesis and you test it again, um, trying to include all the new data that comes along the way. You have to start with something because you have to have a question to ask. The biggest mistake would be ignoring all of the new things that happen and just going hell-bent in one direction, trying to convince yourself of the thing that you already expected to be true. Um, this uh, so-called confirmation bias um, that a lot of people experience subconsciously. And... Um, I, I don't ever recall having a conscious moment where I thought I'm okay with failure um, <laughs> failure still sucks uh, getting rejected from grants and getting papers rejected is horrible um, but the day to day being unsure of what you're doing to some degree um, you know, we know the tools, we know the techniques we just don't know how it's going to happen and that's a biology um, conundrum I'm fine with that I think it's good. It keeps it interesting for me. Um, we learn things that we wouldn't otherwise know. Um, I, 
maybe there's a lot of people that want to be in a job where they feel absolutely sure of everything they're doing and they know, know the outcome every day. That's not the job for me. Okay. Um, two more questions. We'll come back to this. We'll in and out in science, but I'll, two more questions. One more question directly related to science. What's the difference in the creativity in being a manager and like directing a lab and controlling a lab and the creativity of like being on the bench where you're like doing the experiments and like what's it like how does it how do you feel that it's different so i think the word that you mentioned is control and the the most important thing for me is to not control people in the lab um to be more of a, a guide um kind of like being the bumpers in in temp and bowling right yeah um you want to you want to give everyone a chance to to bowl a ball and get a strike um and you just got to be there to make sure things don't go in the gutter and you know push it back in the right direction when when it's starting to go awry um if i was standing behind that person and trying to teach them how to bowl and it just it wouldn't work half the time it would go in the gutter anyway uh, because i'm not always right Actually, as I said, I'm mostly wrong. Um, so you want to give everyone that comes through the lab the opportunity to tackle their own questions and to do it themselves. And in doing that, you get this collective creativity because everyone has a different approach to things. While you may have a bias on, on the way an experiment should be done, unless you have so much experience to tell you that what they're proposing is not going to work at all, you really have to try and let them do it their way. And that's a challenge. That's probably the biggest challenge for me because um, when I was doing the experiments, I wanted complete control over them. And I wanted to make sure everything was done exactly the way I wanted it to, do, to be. That may be different from the guy sitting, the girl sitting next to me, but um, it was the way I knew how it was gonna work. And so I, have, I consciously had to try and take my hands off the wheel and let other people drive a little. And that's tough, I'm still battling with that. That's a daily okay. challenge for me as a, as a boss. Um, and so me not interjecting so much enables new things to be tried that I wouldn't have tried with my quota of creativity. <laughs> okay, this is interesting. Now, this, I can naturally ask the next question, but to wrap this up. so. When you, when these postdocs are applying to your lab, and I actually don't know how this technique works, they know what you do, you have a lab, you put like a request for a postdoc, and they send in like, I wanna work for your lab, and here are my ideas that I have. It's not so much like you have like, well this is what I wanna do, and you can kinda of come in and you'll, you'll, do, you'll like be doing what I want you to do, you're kinda of like a widget in my machine, or you're like, okay, my lab does this, I'm put, I'm have like a new space open for a postdoc, and you just like apply and say, here is my creative idea. Which, which one of those two, how does that work? Uh, some postdocs send in their ideas about what they want to do. Some people say, I really like what you do and I want to come and work for you, learn from you, develop new things in your, in your lab, within your space. Um, I usually tell people that are applying to my lab that I don't expect them to have a brilliant idea when they approach me because I don't, it's very rare that you can, from the outside, um, have an idea that is both sort of conceptually exciting and practically feasible. 
not knowing the ins and outs of how all of the tools and techniques operate within the lab. And so I, I like to hear their ideas because it tells you how they think about science and, and how creative they are in, in designing a, an approach to tackle a question. But I generally would, um, people that come to the lab, I get them to start off on a project that is already sort of running while they find their feet and learn from everyone else in the lab and, and get an idea of what's possible and what's not possible, um, what things we have that are unique and they can capitalize on, how, how they can function to exploit the, the unique parts of our lab in a new way. And I think that's very difficult to do and plan from the outside okay. that are done internally. And so um, generally when I've asked postdocs to join the lab, it's been because they have asked good questions in the interview. Like they're not just receiving information, they're not necessarily listening to everything, but they're asking a question when we tell them what the lab does or, you know, or they propose, have you ever tried doing this? And that tells me that they're thinking and that they're curious. Okay. Uh, they're not just going through the motions. Um, the, the first postdoc that ever joined my lab, who's been incredible, worked on um, how eosinophils, which is a, a specific subtype of, of uh, white cells in the blood, how they uh, function in asthma. No history in cancer biology, no, no, nothing related to any of the genes that we work on. But when I was telling her what the lab does and I was at the whiteboard in my office, when she was interviewing and going through some of the projects, she stood up and came to the board and said, what about this? What about this? Have you tried this? And um, the genuine curiosity to understand, and even if it's not for her benefit, just you want to ask a question because you want to know, um, is a good sign in a postdoc, I think. And okay. So that's usually been my, my threshold or my metric for right. someone will work. That's interesting. Okay. All right. Moving away from science for a second. So you have a daughter. What what is it like to either nurture someone's creativity or help to guide or to facilitate creativity as opposed to like doing it yourself? Yeah, that's been very interesting. Um, so she, in the last year or so, has really found a love of drawing. And this was something I did a lot as a kid too. And um, she would sometimes be very meticulous in trying to draw something and, and get everything right. And sometimes just do whatever. And um, it was, it's a fine balance. Sometimes she gets very upset if something doesn't look exactly the way she wants it to look. And I know that feeling. And so we try and help her to not let that happen. But sometimes she doesn't care and she doesn't want us to interfere with what she's doing. And I think, as it is with most things, um, raising a child, you kind of just have to let them do whatever they want to do and deal with the consequences. <laughs> um, and we, as much as we can, um, encourage her to be creative and try different things, you know, different especially in, from the drawing is a good example of it, but it's true in, in a lot of other ways she plays. We have huge piles of paints and pencils and markers and we have paper everywhere that she can grab. We don't want that to be a limiting thing. Just sort of go and, and do what you need to do. Um, 
we live in a small apartment, but you know we try and make spaces for her to to be able to to do those things. We have the the art activity center in the corner over there, um, to just let her sit at and do whatever she wants to do, um, and so I I'm not much better now at and and she can speak more clearly now she's four and a half, um, so I can have conversations, and I ask her what what does she need from me? What would you like me to do to your drawing you're doing or would you like me to start it and then you take over whereas I used to just do what I thought would be most helpful and that was usually again the wrong thing okay yeah uh, it's, it's, yeah. We, we had this conversation about like how and not to be dismissive but like how being a parent is similar to being like managing a lab it's just like alright some, some point you like have to provide some guidance sometimes you just get out of the way and it's just like I don't have all the answers here and so here's some guidance let's see what you do it's like oh I never thought about that that's interesting yeah yeah, learning by mistake. I mean, in lab, you have to some, somewhat manage the mistakes because some of them can be expensive and we're, we're spending taxpayer money. But once you make a, a, a fundamental mistake, you never do it again. And so often I'll just let people go and make the mistakes uh, as long as they're not the $1,000 mistakes. Okay. Um, the same is true with Gemma. She's trying all sorts of new different things, the way she draws, you know, what kind of uh, pencil she uses and how she draws a body changes every week um, and it's amazing to watch really um, I want she, she's single-handedly you know causing substantial amount of deforestation but <laughs> and I want to keep all these drawings and and things um, it's just I mean we have piles and piles every week and it's great and she's improving incredibly and and doing different things. She's not stuck in drawing the same thing over and over again, which is really nice to see. Um, and I don't know why she's doing that, whether she's seeing other people do it or it's just, she's seeing the world differently. Um, but I think the same is true of, of, you know, there's classic studies showing that to become an expert in anything, you have to commit you know, 10,000 hours to it. It's very true in science too, I think. I spent, my postdoc was probably, you know, on average working 12, 10, 12 hour days, six days a week for six years. And I definitely made a lot of mistakes. Um, but spending that much time doing something hones the skills to the point where you know you can do it. Okay. Um, do you feel like, and maybe this, you may or may not know the answer to this, do you feel like helping her with creativity is inspiring your creativity, um, not just in science, but like in other aspects of your life? Or no, not really. It's getting back. It's actually getting me back to drawing. Yeah, which is nice. Um, when she's coloring a drawing, I can sit down and and draw something um, for her or with her or you know, just how often do you, as an adult, you sit down and use colored pencils to do anything? You know. Yeah. <laughs> There's all these different ways that I would think about drawing a picture now that I haven't done since I was. I probably stopped drawing. Um, when I was 18, 19, um, and yeah, so that's no, fun, I, um, it's different, I can sit down, TV's off, I'm not checking my email, and I can just draw something. Okay. Um, you don't, especially as a parent, when you're busy and doing lots of things and you kind of, you do all the tasks that you need to do, like the laundry and cleaning up the kitchen. And, 
you don't often let yourself sit down and do a hobby. You know, I have a guitars on the wall. I very rarely play them anymore uh, <laughs> because just time is challenging. I actually took one of the guitars to the lab, so I have my guitar hanging in my office, which allows me to every now and then I'm sort of reading something that doesn't make sense, or I'm writing trying to write a grant, and I just need my brain to switch off and pick up the guitar and play for a while, um, and just a just a mental five minute, five ten minute break helps sometimes. It's interesting because I was going to ask a question about this, but I'll just kind of bring it around. So when you're playing the guitar, so. What I know about you is you play the guitar, you're making beer right now Well, when I came in. Um, this is beer from scratch, brewing in his apartment. Um, you're a pretty good golfer and you were, you're really good at tennis. We'll come back to tennis in a second. Um, but when you're talking about science, you're saying like you start with a, like a goal and then you do it in reverse. When you're like playing music, it doesn't, my guess is you're probably gonna start with the goal. You're just kind of just letting your brain just go. Uh, mix. So sometimes I'm, I want to learn a song, okay, like a song I know. Or sometimes my daughter wants me to learn a song, um, and so I'll more methodically break it down into smaller chunks and try and learn those pieces. And that's just repetition and trying a different way of doing it. You know, um, and sometimes I just pick up the guitar and sort of play around um, to find cool chords or finger picking styles, sounds, progressions that um, sound nice. Okay. And I don't put a lot of, I, I sort of actively don't think. I try not to put a lot of thought into what I'm doing at that point. I'm not, I don't, I never learnt music classically. I. I learnt enough to be able to piece together a chord at some point, but I've forgotten most of that. And so it's more about what sounds good on the guitar. And you know from experience where, where you, you should put your fingers to make something sound good or, or horrible. But the less I think about it, the more interesting things happen. And this is interesting where you get to about science and, and the other type of traditional creative things. Um, do you, there's like, I guess this fairly recent research about flow state. Um, I have to dig deep into it. I was talking to a friend of mine about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, but the idea, like, do you, have you ever played basketball? A little bit. Um, there's this place, they say, it, it, they say this happens with all sorts of things, but in athletics, it's easiest to articulate. There's a place when you're doing something where you stop thinking about it and you just go. It's just like the, a good example. The zone. Yeah, the zone. The zone. It's like there's research about this, and like they've done stuff like you kind of like they basketball players say like the the rim it's like gigantic, and you feel like you can't miss, and you're just like hitting everything. I imagine the similar thing happens with golf. You kind of just get into like a place where you're just like, oh, it's going where I want to go, want it to go, and I'm not even trying. I'm just kind of just like in a easy, fluid place that's thinking without thinking. I had that with tennis. I don't know if I've ever had it with golf. I've played a lot more tennis than golf, but um, yeah, I've definitely had that in tennis, where it just, you just know that you're gonna be able to hit the shot you wanna hit. Um, okay. It doesn't last, for me at least, it doesn't last hours, but it might be, you know, a point in a, in a match, in a game, sort of meditative. Yes. Um, where you, you can just see the ball and you feel good and 
you know, there's not much distraction. You're not, you're not noticing the bird or the person that's talking over there. Um, yeah, so it's cool. They I, say, <laughs> they, I, I, I've experienced this a few times in my life. It's one of those things that's funny, to me at least. You can't actively try to get there. You just kind of end up there. And the funny thing is when you talk to people, people who've been there, you just know you're there. You're like, oh, I'm here. And it's just like, all right, this is just kind of like, you're just, it's almost like you're in connection with the universe. You're like in the flow of the universe. Which yeah. Is, I, don't think, I don't think that would happen in science just because of the, the amount of time it takes to do things. And there's no, you don't have the endorphins of, of physical activity like sport. Um, I, you know, I felt like that giving talks before where you just sort of feel good. You know, it's coming a couple of slides ahead. You, you sort of making the right segues and making all the points you want to make and you feel like you're getting your message across. Um, and you're not really paying attention to like, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? It's just flowing out. Um, but I think it has, those sort of things have to be over pretty short. Yeah. First, you can. First, yeah. <laughs> so going back to tennis and just physical, more creativity. You said that you were you were going to be a professional tennis player, and I know you in were, my mind, in your mind. <laughs> like, so like caveat, caveat, caveat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I know you were pretty good. You were pretty good at tennis. Like yeah. I, I guess my guess is you're pretty good, like natural athlete. Um, you're probably coordinated for whatever reason. Um, a, there must have been a level when you were like, oh, I'm pretty good at. Like amongst the people you're hanging out with, you play. You're like, I'm pretty good at this. Mm-hmm. Was it you who were telling me the story about? Was it? Um, she's a, a female tennis player who was destroying men, male tennis players. Maybe it wasn't you that was telling me about this. It wasn't him. No. Um, um, but once you start, well, there's a level once you get to, and like you're like, all right, I'm pretty good. But you get to a level where it's like, oh, people are really good. And I know, and for a while, you're Australian. In case you didn't pick that up in, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> d- d- earlier in, I for a while like there were a, a good chunk of like good Australian tennis players. Yeah, so I think the 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 example that really made me realize that I should be spending a bit more time in school or thinking about non-tennis careers was that um, growing up in Australia, I was I'm three days older I think than Leighton Hewitt who was uh, number one in the world. He won Wimbledon, he won the US Open. Um, and so we were in the, almost exactly the same age. He grew up in a different state in Australia, so we didn't play each other. Uh, we actually never played each other um, for the reason I'll tell you in a sec. But he, um, he was a very good junior. He was never the best. He was always second. So there was someone that was bigger than him, more powerful in the early days. And so we played the under 13, under 14's nationals tournament um, in which I lost in the first round and he went on I think to lose in the quarterfinals but the next year so one year later um, he played in the under 18's group because he had improved so much that year and he won and then the next year he beat Agassi at a tournament in Australia in the lead up to the Australian Open and I went and watched him play um, Sergei Bruguera in the first his first round of the Australian Open that he ever played and he lost 6-4, 6-4, 6-4 um, but Sergei Bruguera was the French Open champion at the time so he was top, top 5, top 10 tennis players in the world Leighton was 15 and so in the space of 2 years we went from you know 
being peers at, at a junior nationals level tournament to him almost beating the French Open champion and beating Andre Agassi a week earlier. And it was very clear that <laughs> I wasn't going anywhere. Um, you know, the writing was probably on the wall before that, but that, you know, thinking back to that is amazing, the progression and those things. But, you know, locally, you know, we were in the, the, the small squad. I, I was in the, the Victorian state squad for a few years um, and did a lot of traveling, played a lot of tennis, won a lot of trophies, you know, the things you want to do as a kid. Yeah. Um, and it was fun. And I always wanted to be the best. I think that's a natural instinct for most people. Um, but at some point, you know, I lost plenty as well. Uh, do you feel like, what's the difference for you? Because I mean, I don't know if you did tennis for that degree pretty early. What's the difference to you between like physical creativity and like the intellectual creativity that normally goes on with science? Because like there's a certain amount of like, all right, I want to do this shot. So you can either practice a shot a thousand times you're like all right i'm good enough i don't really care or is like i'm, I'm wondering what's this type of thing is like at some point it's just like coordination and natural aptitude get you to a certain level and does the, the separation does that continue does it, coordination and aptitude continue to separation or is it like like when you're in a lab it's just like i'm going to keep like practicing this shot over and I'm, when everyone else is going to bed i'm going to keep doing this is that the difference or is it just hard to tell yeah, I think um, in tennis, I trained a lot, but not to the level of, of the pros. Um, and that's a lot of drills, right? Practicing, doing the same shot over and over. And, over. and you, in doing that, just acquire a well-rounded knowledge of if my racket's here and my arm is here, the ball is going to go over there. And it becomes subconscious, a subconscious understanding of if I put all these things in the right place, the ball's going to go here. And it kind of has to be that way because you can't predict where the ball's going to be at any given time on the tennis court. Maybe Federer, who's played a bazillion matches now and hit you know, millions of tennis balls, has hit every shot possible. But I think really what, what makes those sort of players good is that they just understand in a very 360-degree multidimensional view where the ball is there and I do these things with my body and the racket, it's going to go over there. And so you can be creative then because you understand how it's going to happen. You can be creative on the spot. Yeah, you uh, understand your tools. And your tools happen to be your body and your racket. Right. But and I think that, and it's not, they're not, you don't, you don't have the time to think exactly what's going to happen or, you know, but there's an instinct when you play enough or do enough this is likely going to be the outcome, which is what I want. Um, doesn't mean it's not like the craziest shot that anyone's ever hit. Yeah. <laughs> and you could call it creative, but I think it's just a natural outcome of, of knowing everything about the game okay. in that way. Um, and I think, you know, science is similar. You just, the more you know, and the more questions you ask or curiosity, it'll end up in a... You, you, we can look back over the sort of the digest of scientific history and say, wow, that was an amazing advance. But if you were that with that person day to day, it was probably very incremental yeah. along the way. And that's true of anything that happens in any lab right now. It might seem like, oh, bang, there's an amazing discovery. Like the black hole, the first image of the black hole was just published this week. And everyone's sort of mind is blown. 
Um, but that project has been going for years, years and years. And figuring out how to, to reconstruct that image and, and put it, pull the pieces together um, day to day must have been incredibly straining and, and boring in some ways. But when it's on the front cover of the New York Times... The story is like, oh, it happened overnight. Yeah. It's a funny thing. Like, I, I read it, I hear about these things, like, people who become famous or... They're like, oh, you can't, you became famous overnight. And the person, and everyone said people are like, there are a few examples where like you're really young and it happens. Yeah. Most people are like, yeah, I was slaving away yeah. for like eight years yeah. when like when I was putting in the work, and I didn't happen overnight. I became famous. Like I've just been working at it. You just didn't know that I was working at. It. Like yeah. the Beatles when they went to Germany yeah. and just like stayed in like, <laughs> like I think it's this Blink, like Gladwell's book about this. Like you just kind of just like doing reps, reps, reps. And it's just like, oh, the Beatles are like, no. They, <laughs> they were failing in Germany for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, it's definitely true in science. And there's, there's creative solutions and, and sort of light bulb moments that form small parts of projects. But um, as these things come together and you know, new concepts and new ideas are formed, it, it's made up of a lot of different parts. Okay. Um, Jumping to like, we'll come back to, uh, with, let me ask you a question before I jump to that. Um, when you're playing golf, and you played golf when you were a kid too a little bit, not yeah. as seriously as tennis obviously. Yeah. Um, when, you're, when you're doing it now, is it a creative thing or is it just kind of just trying to work on basic techniques or maybe it's the same thing for you? I, I get the sense that you've gotten more into it re- fairly re- recently. Golf is much more of a relaxation thing for me. Okay. Um, it's very challenging. Um, I like challenges, um, which is probably why I brew beer. Right? I could go and buy beer, probably the same cost that I put into buying all this stuff. But it's not a challenge. I don't feel the satis- I like feeling sort of satisfaction from doing something that looks difficult and and completing it. And um, golf is the epitome of something that looks actually in concept is very easy, but um, it's such a challenging sport um, and you're not competing against anyone else. It's always just you. It doesn't matter what the person next to you does, right? maybe mentally, but from a purely sort of physical standpoint and, and the way the sport functions, it's a, it's, a, it's a very difficult mental challenge, golf, even for the best in the world. Um, and you also get to walk around like beautiful yeah. course for four hours You're in a park. And, and yeah enjoy the outdoors so it's much more relaxing as a, a sport for me now than a challenge where I'm going to try and go and improve day to day I don't think a lot about I mean I'll make a mistake and think oh, okay how could I swing differently next time so it's much more enjoyable if you're hitting the ball where you want it every time but it's not something I'm out there trying to improve yeah, you're not trying to lower your score if it gets better it's great if it doesn't that's great but it's not I mean, I'd love to have it low every time and, and I, you know, try to make adjustments all the time, but I'm not being very technical about it, to be honest. I don't go out and hit balls on the range to try and improve my swing. I go and play golf. Okay. And that's it. I used to, I mean, as a kid, I would go and hit balls without actually playing the game just to, because again, it was a challenge. I wanted to hit the ball as far as I could and you know, those the, kind of things. The way you describe it, and I know you've run a marathon, uh, it sounds very similar to like running a marathon. It's just like a mental thing. Um, I didn't get the sense that you were trying to be like top 
95% of the marriage, you're like, I'm just, you know, I want to do this. It's something I want to do with my wife. And so it seems like a similar type of thing. Yeah, that, um, I, never I, thought I never thought I'd run a marathon. And I don't have the body type to run a marathon. Very um, fast twitch fibers. But I'm glad I did it. Um, more because the training was just a mental, huge mental challenge. Um, the marathon itself is tough course and it was it was a tough day for me but the challenge of like getting up when there's no one outside cheering and going for a 21 mile run on a Saturday at the end of summer in New York pretty unpleasant conditions um, was was really a mental battle and um, it was very useful for me as a to to know that I could do it more than anything sort of say yes I didn't get up and say hey I'll go another day. Oh, do I really want to do this? Yeah. It helped that we had a, uh, you know, eight-month-old daughter, or I guess she was, she would have been about a year at that point. Um, so we had a babysitter every Saturday morning, so we could go on our long runs. Yeah. So that helped. So your date, because when she your, showed your date up, morning was like <laughs> <laughs> when, the, when the babysitter showed up, we had to go. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, it was a, it was a great experience to, to do the training. Um, the marathon itself is cool and, and very unique, especially the New York City one. But um, I got the most out of the fact that I pushed myself through the training okay. to do it. It's interesting because I know like you at some point like started getting like, was it cramps in your calves or like- During the marathon. Yeah, during the marathon. Do you feel like that was just something that was like a mental thing that you need to like, I need to get over this hurdle too? Or is it like, all right, I know I can- Finish this at some point because I've done this a thousand like a yeah time. that was t- that was what made the day tough. I mean I hadn't been cramping at all during training, um, and we sort of prepared as well as we could. But at mile twelve, I started cramping in both calves and both quads, and so I had fourteen miles to to run with cramps. And there was a lot of stopping and stretching and starting and walking, um, and I didn't at the point at that time see it as a wonderful thing that I would. I look back on it and say, yeah. oh, wasn't this challenge great? Um, I, I would be very happy if that hadn't happened on marathon day. Um, but I was always going to finish. Okay. I didn't, it didn't cross my mind to stop. You know, Yeah. I, I, I wish we had been able to just keep running and, and go a little faster and kind of enjoy it rather than battling through it. But there was no point where I said, I think I'm going to stop. Um, I told my wife to go ahead of me and just enjoy her run. But she, to her credit, she didn't, um, which was very useful because I needed her to like punch my calves at about mile 22. Um, and we did it together. And, and that was, that's a good memory um, in the end. So I, I could have enjoyed the day more, but it was never, there was never a chance we were not gonna do it. Unless my leg just completely seized and wouldn't function. Yeah. <laughs> they would have to drag you off. Yeah. It wasn't a matter of like yeah. consciously deciding. Yeah. Um, I'll never run another one. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> yeah. I know you still run, so I thought I assumed at some point you would be like, you know what, fuck it, let's do this again. I don't think it's good for your body, right. honestly. Uh, I, can... I still run sh- shorter distances, and I've run a couple of half marathons, but it's a big, it's a big time commitment. Yeah. To run the full, and I don't think it's good for my body, and I don't need to do it again. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I. I debate about this type. I always feel like, and you and Megan running actually make me think, if I ever ran a marathon, 
I would do it with someone else because whatever box I needed to check about running a marathon, that's good. I don't need to do it again. Yeah. Um, but doing it with someone you know, seems like a really cool, unique experience. Yeah, it's camaraderie. Yeah, sure. That was really good. Going to on our long runs together. Obviously, during the week, we'd do our runs by ourselves, but on the weekends when we had our babysitter and we could have time alone and we could get, neither of us had run that distance before and so we were getting through these challenges together. That was, um, that was really cool. Uh-huh. Um, all right, so it was funny. Like, when I was doing this, uh, let me look at this, the questions. It was funny, so when I was doing, when I was writing up these questions, I didn't realize that so I've interviewed, you'd be my, you're gonna be my fourth person. And it was a guy and two women. And I didn't realize it until I was going through the questions again, looking at them, like kind of seeing where I wanted to go. And I was like, oh, I had subconsciously removed questions about emotions from it. And it's like, I think maybe it's because you're a male and maybe because you're a science that I, I kind of just naturally gravitated away from like, oh, well, we won't do a more emotional stuff. Because usually I, when I talk about creativity, I think of it as an emotional experience. And so I'm like, so I put emotional questions back into it. Um, where, what place emotionally do you feel most creative? Where do you, where do you, like, where do you draw from? I don't know. Um, from a very general perspective, um, I'm much more creative when I'm happy um, and feeling sort of satisfied or comfortable with where I am. Um, I don't feel like I'm creative when I'm upset or angry or frustrated with things. I can get things done then. And, um, but I, yeah, um, I think, well, maybe that's, I was gonna say, I think that maybe that's universal, but I guess a lot of great songs were written when people were angry and frustrated and sad. Yeah, (laughs) I do good when I'm sad. (laughs) Uh, I don't think so. I mean, we obviously have, we have frustration and sadness in science, mostly from, um, I don't get frustrated and sad about experiments and things, projects not working, but the the emotion which I'm I'm mostly not dealing with anymore um, is getting grants rejected and papers rejected. And initially, I think that felt like a personal rejection of my ideas, um, but ultimately, it just became that you know the practicalities of needing to fund the research and pay people to do it. Um, and we have to constantly apply for these grants and the funding rates are 10%. And so nine out of 10 times you're going to get rejected. So you feel like it should get easier and it does over time. Um, but there is this sort of practical matter of needing to get money to order things to make things happen. So when that happens, you know, or something fails in the lab, I can quickly pivot and start the next thing. And I think my coping mechanism is that I move on quickly to go and do new things to solve whatever the problem is. Write the next grant or do the next experiment that's trying to get past the thing that just failed. Um, but I don't think I'm particularly creative in those moments. They're not the times I sit down and figure out a new way to, to engineer a mouse. 
um, those things I think happy happen when I'm content and, and happy with where I am. We talked about this a while back. Um, we're talking about like paralysis by analysis, um, and this kind of touches on it a little bit. Do you think that there's a the component of creativity is the doing. Like sometimes you, if you think it too much, you're not going to be creative enough. You have to just do it and just see. Yeah, um, that's the first example that comes to mind is actually writing a grant. So you know we have to get this money. We have to write things. They're long documents. It's somewhat formulaic, but it can also be kind of creative in the way that you deliver a message to someone. Think about writing a short book. Um, you want the person that's reading it that's deciding whether or not they're going to give you the money to be engaged and to understand the point you're trying to get across and to finish without feeling like it was painful. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. There's a lot, there's a lot more ways to do that than there is to actually do the sort of bench science that we're, we're proposing in the grant. And um, when, you've, when you first start out as a, as a junior professor, there's a lot of mentoring advice and courses that you take on how to write a good grant and how to do all these things and I did them and I think it helped some of the fundamentals of the grant writing but when I would spend too long going over these things and trying to make everything the way I thought someone else wanted it to be um, inevitably those grants never got funded and so when I and I realized it wasn't enjoyable at all I was going over every single thing and, and trying to project forward what three people who I've never met and I don't even know who they are would think of this grant rather than what what is the best thing I could write here what is the best thing that we should do and how can I better convey that message rather than trying to stick to the rules and stick to the formula of how to do this and the process became more enjoyable and the grant started getting funded we also had produced more data and everything like that so you can't ascribe everything to to sort of changing the way uh, we did it but um, I think there's definitely an aspect that in science is often forgotten is that primarily we do science to discover new things but that's totally meaningless unless you can communicate it and there's no one set way to communicate now we've everyone in the field falls into the trap of doing the same presentations over and over again at conferences and not trying to think about how can I make this more digestible for people or how can I make it more engaging for people than just doing the same old thing? And it's tricky because we're busy. The same old thing is easy. Yeah, it's a skill. It's yeah. <laughs> um, I realized probably two years ago that I was giving what I would consider relatively boring talks because I wasn't putting any effort into thinking how is this presentation going to be received by the audience like how can I make it more interesting or how because that takes a lot of time you have to put a lot of time and effort into it's a different skill set yeah. than the other skill set of doing the science yeah it's a creative, different creative skill set yeah and I think if you have a 20 minute talk you need to put in days of preparation if you want to make it a good one I can put together a 20 minute talk in a couple of hours if you want it to be fine but if you want it to be good you have to commit the time. And often we forget about that. The same is true for grant writing. We could be very formulaic and just put everything that needs to be there in the right box, in the right place. But if you want to come up with something new or different um, or more enjoyable to read, then it takes a lot more energy. So I think, and not 
the energy is in trying different things, I think, because ultimately the amount of time spent hitting keys to type words is the same. But if you're trying to do something in a new way or trying to present something new, you have to, again, fail a lot. You have to try five different things and say, okay, I think this one's the best one, rather than just going through the sort of templated standard thing. The way you talk about it, it sounds a lot like, I mean, this is like with anything, finding your voice. Um, it probably happens in music and everything. It's just like, you gotta find your voice and not try to do, because if you're doing someone else's voice, I guess there's some people who are good at like mimicking someone else's voice, but it's more authentic when you're just like, this is what I have to say and this is how I want to say it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it takes time. Some people are better than others. Maybe the ones that are more confident or have a different background. Um, but, you know, you ultimately spend enough time around people all doing the same thing and you kind of just get on the this mentality of, okay, I'll do that too. I'll do it the way they did it. And, um, sometimes that's what you need to do, but it's, it's good to be able to think about how... It's really great going to, to see someone give a talk at a conference or anywhere, really, and you sit there the whole time sort of engaged, and at the end you're like, oh, I didn't you know, check my phone, I didn't look at my watch, I didn't scan around the room for something better to look at. You were sort of engaged and, and enthralled the whole time. It's pretty rare, but it's... I wonder, I guess you go to a lot of conferences, but I guess you don't see the same people present, but I wonder if the people who are good at it, they kind of find a rhythm and they're like, okay, I know how to be good at this, or it's just like, they, you can you catch them in their flow state. <laughs> they hit like the talk, and then like the other five talks, you're like, well, that's kind of boring. And they hit the talk again. It's, I wonder if it's like, but it's hard to like have like enough of like a sample size to know. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the best talk I've ever seen had just it had a gimmick in it, and it was nothing I'd ever seen before, and it was it resonated with the science. So it's a he's now the president or the president elect of the American Association for Cancer Research. So a big name. He was giving a talk on immunotherapy, which is a very hot topic in cancer treatment now. And he was giving a lot of background. And we were at a conference of probably 300 people. Most people there sort of know, every, know each other. And at the bottom of his slide, a little email notification pops up with from one of the other sort of senior people, attendees, saying something derogatory, like, I didn't invite you here to just give us a textbook, like, show me some data. And um, everyone sort of stopped and started talking to the person next to him. Did you see that? Oh my God, what's going on? And then another one happened from someone else. And at this, it wasn't until the third one, really, that we triggered that he had animated these into his slides ahead of time. Um, and it was feeding into the story he was telling. It was, you know, at the transition point from when he was stopped giving background to when he was starting to start talking about data, he had this one where someone was like, hey, give us the data. The next one was like, hey, tell us about the signaling. But it was all, it was beautifully done because it engaged the audience. Everyone was very interested in what was happening. You started paying more attention to what he was saying. And uh, I remember the talk, and this was like three, three years ago. Huh. Um, and I'd never seen anyone do it before, and you can't then go and incorporate it yeah, into your own it, talk. You, you, yeah, it's done. <laughs> now they've known um, It's the sixth sense. <laughs> But you know that if you give a talk somewhere and you plug your computer in to do it, 
constantly have a fear that someone an email is going to pop up in the middle of the talk and so he knew how to like he catch, the catch the audience yeah. and um, it was very creative and I kind of hope that I can come up with something like that doesn't, whether it's that whether it's gimmicky or not to be so engaging that someone remembers my talk three years later my guess is if that ever happened when you when that idea hitch, you'll be like, this is the idea. My guess is when he did it, yeah. that idea was like, yeah, this is the thing. Yeah. Or maybe it happened to him once and he kind of threw him off, yeah. but he kind of worked, learned to work with it. Right, um, so that, that might be one of those times where something accidental happens and then you're like, yeah, something seems super creative was a total accident. Yeah, as opposed to like getting down on yourself, it's just like, oh wait, maybe if I flip this and kind of use it in, yeah. to my advantage. Yeah. Um, hmm. So, Going from there, like, and that's too hard. Like, so every once in a while you're talking, I'm writing things down because sometimes, like, I try to keep mental notes of where I want to go in the conversation. And I was like, instead of doing that, because that, that kind of distracts me from listening to you, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'll just write it down so I can figure out if I want to go back to it. This, like, so when you're talking about this professor, um, you're saying it seems like they're the ability to articulate things or understand something well enough to be able to articulate it on like a, like a common person, like a touch, like touch on the human part of it. Um, is that difficult to do? Because that's like another level of like, all right, I have to know it so well that I can actually, dumb it down is not the right term for it, but make it digestible, digestible to everyone as opposed to people who are in this field and kind of know what's going on anyways. Yeah, it's really tough and it's practice. I don't think that's a natural thing. That's something you have to sit down and think about what are the words I'm using and are they reasonably understandable? Do they convey the right idea? Because as you said earlier, you try and piece together a, a picture of what this means. Um, and if there are too many holes in a story that you're trying to get across, you don't know what, it, you don't know what that picture is in the end. Right? You don't know what it looks like. And um, we often, when we're writing grants again or something, have to write what's called a lay abstract. So this is for the, the lay public, um, where you don't use jargon and you don't you use commonly used words rather than the, the scientific verbiage. And they're the ones we always leave till the end because they're not easy. They're very challenging to be a good communicator um, to non-specialist yeah. people is very challenging. <laughs> uh, but the more you do it, the better you get at it. The, what's the physicist that recently got in trouble about it? Um, recently got in trouble for, what's his name? Tall, big guy, physicist, astrophysicist. He's brown like me. I can't even oh, remember. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yes, he, had, he was good at that. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, going back to emotions. We're not going to walk away from that yet. Um, where... A lab, to me, whenever I go into a lab, I've worked in a lab briefly before in my life, doesn't seem like necessarily the most place that would bring out creativity. Like where, maybe it is for you, where, what place are you most like at ease and able to be most creative? I don't know. I don't think I have a, a space. Okay. Like, I don't think... Um, I think I can get into that space, you know, drawing things out for me. Maybe that comes back to sort of the graphics side of the way I interpret the world is, is in images or something. Um, 
if I draw it out and I can sort of, I can be on the couch with a piece of paper or I could be at the whiteboard or I could be at the, the bench in the lab drawing it on the, the bench coat. Um, I feel like that gets me into a sort of tunnel vision of state where I can just focus on what's in front of me. Um, so it's not necessarily the things around me where, I, you know, I need candles and, and spa music or anything like that or nature sounds. Um, I think it's, um, it's very visual for me. So if I can have a time, not even has to be, doesn't even have to be quiet. Sometimes I have a TV on in the background, something happening, sport. Um, like if, if I'm really, if I'm in the right mindset to be, to solve that problem, then I can kind of get there anywhere. I think. Okay. Uh, um, but I can't force it. Okay. Three more things, three or four more yeah. things, and then we'll wrap it up. All right, so do you feel like having the background, the cross-sectional background that you had helps you in, like be a better science, better in science? Cross-sectional in terms of um, you doing can, yeah, athletics. And, athletics and like graphic design and drawing. You think that helps you because you, like, you have these other things to draw on? So from a very direct way, the graphic design side helps the communication. So I spend a lot of time trying to draw out, um, we call them figures, but sort of graphical explainers for a process. Something you can look at and understand without having text. So no accompanying story, but something that tells a story in one static image. Don't and tell me, show me. Yeah, that's, it's tough. It's a tough thing to do to encapsulate a, a complex idea in, in pictures that are not moving. Um, and you have to be, you have to, that's where there's a lot of trial and error. Like, does this work? What if I put this over here? You show it to people, say, do you understand this? Like, tell me what I'm trying to tell you. And if they don't get it, yeah, go yeah, back to the yeah. drawing board. Um, and so I think that helps there. Just, I've always been very visual or sort of aesthetic in the things I do. I want them to look a certain way. Um, and so I think that helps directly from for the science and for communicating the science. Um, the other stuff, I don't know. Um, you know, I have forged friendships with people about tennis. Um, there's a, a Nobel prize winner that has an office a couple of doors down from me at, at Cornell who was the director of the National Cancer Institute for a while and um, we 50% of the time we speak it's about tennis it's not, okay. not about science but just having done different things in your life gives you you know opportunities to interact with with people that are scientific colleagues or allies in different ways but interact with them on a different level where um, you know, in any classic structure, he's, he's at the top of the hierarchy. Um, but when we're talking about tennis... He's a human being. It's, it's, like, totally, <laughs> yeah. it's totally level. And um, that helps you on this interpersonal level in just in the science community. If you have other things to talk about and you're not just talking about science all the time, then uh, I think it helps. Okay. Um, uh, this I may be confused on this, and so correct me if I'm wrong. I, I didn't 
my understanding that you didn't grow up with a lot of money. Like, uh, is that, like, I don't know the typical demographic of people who, who are in science. You know, they're usually, like, typically, like, middle class people, and so you are exceptional, or is, like, is, like, science is just so random, it just depends, like. I think it's, I mean, there's definitely, there's a healthy amount of white privilege that comes along with some aspects of that. Okay. Um, in Australia, the, the social structures are set up that you don't need to have money to go to university. You can go to the best university in the country having zero money because the government pays for your education and then you pay them back later. Okay. And it's not a lot. You know, I finished university with like 20,000 in debt. Um, so there's a lot, you're not necessarily restricted in, in your opportunities from an educational standpoint. Um, I mean, I went to a high school that was mostly focused on um, automotive, engineering, that kind of thing, and, and we didn't have a strong science core um, group, but I was interested and engaged with the teachers, and so they spent a lot of time with me, so it sort of worked both ways, whereas the other people that were in the class maybe weren't so interested, so okay. they sort of didn't do it. Um, I think there's a there's a decent cross section in science now, but there's what I've really just noticed in the U.S. and in the last year or so because we had a a high school student in our lab uh, come through that there is a lot of you know science fairs and science prizes for junior people and those people generally come from the elite colleges or the elite high schools in the area and they have the means and the opportunity to go and work in labs and in the system design. they're, they're yeah. sort of in the system and I don't necessarily think that they're the you know most elite group of people but they're definitely in the top 10% of people that have opportunity to do these things so that's a little bit self-selecting but I think um, it's it's more diverse a profession than than a lot of others okay like banking yeah, yeah. Kind of biotech <laughs> yeah. those kind of things um I think, um, you know, scientists don't get paid a lot, so it's not like you go from nothing to, <laughs> to rich, but um, I think it's pretty good. We, we're very internationally diverse. Um, sciences, scientific research, at least, is one of the professions that you travel a lot to work. I mean, I came from Australia to the US. In my lab, we have uh, two Spaniards, an Indian girl, a Chinese grad student, and a couple of Americans. And so you're in, yeah huh. that's that's not unusual that's very common most labs will be represented from multiple different countries and, and backgrounds okay so this, this is my so next question so you're Australian predominantly of European descent um, and you didn't come from a lot of money so on that side you're probably a little bit of an outsider like as far as like ethnic representation, I don't like. I don't know. Maybe like people of your descent don't dominate the. Like I don't know the, the field well enough to like to know whether or not you are the insider with like ethnic background or just kind of like a part of a group of people and like it's shifting depending on like Chinese like. Yeah, it's I, so in the people that come through the lab, so the postdocs, the Spanish, and the grad student that's Chinese there's a very good chance that they'll go back to Spain or to China to kind of continue their careers. A lot of that's driven by 
where their family are and, and what they want to, who they want to be close to in, in the, for the rest of their lives. And so they don't often stay and, and occupy positions of power okay. within the US. And so, you know, being a white male, um, I definitely fit the demographic of the older MDs and physicians that are, that are running the hospital. Um, but I, it's changing for sure. There's a lot more uh, women in, in senior powerful positions now than there was five, ten years ago um, in multiple different places. It's a slow game. <laughs> but I think, I think you know, our dean um, is very, very active, um, very proactive on creating and supporting uh, ethnic diversity within the college. I mean, he's of um, Chinese descent, I think. And um, so those structures exist. Maybe they accomplish something in terms of getting people in. They definitely ward off people that do not support pro-diversity initiatives. Yeah. <laughs> and so it has a twofold effect. I think it, it does help push it along in some degree, but it really keeps um, the whitewashing at bay. Okay. Does this, does the fact that you're a white male, does that help you to, does it force you to be, actually, do you want to be more creative in the way you think about other point, people's points, points of view? Do you not think about it much? You, like, when you, like, there's a amount of like, all right, what is someone, or what does someone from China think about this type of research? Or is like science, science, and like the, the language of science is universal and there's not much difference between different cultures. I think we'd like to think it's universal, but I'm not naive enough to believe that. Um, okay. And I'm fortunate enough that I don't, I've never had to spend a lot of time thinking about um, my ethnicity or whether that affects me in any way. And so I don't, and I, I, I don't even know how I would go about putting myself in someone else's shoes, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> um, I just try and be aware and cognizant of the fact that different people have different points of view and, and um, different challenges and different backgrounds, histories, sort of maybe not, not ethnic backgrounds, but life histories that sort of have, have influenced the way they think about things or the way things should be done. Um, and ideally science would be um, separate from all of that, but it's impossible because okay. science is driven by people. Um, so it's just a matter of being, I think, being conscious of it and trying to not not let yourself ignore those fundamental differences. Just acknowledge that, that they're there and don't be a dick. <laughs> okay. Three things and we're done. Um, was it, because you said you were in the graphic design, tennis and the graphic design, bring it back to the beginning. Was it scary at all to pick science and just, like release the graphic design part of you apparently for like almost 20 years of your life I mean it plays yeah. into your science a little bit but it's like to actually yeah I really liked the idea of it when I was sort of year 10 year 11 um, and I really you know thought it'd be really cool to be in that line of work but it was a transition that to the point where it was like wow science is really interesting right? okay and I just just became fascinated understanding how, how things worked. And so 
I didn't have to push myself through a like, I don't really want to do this phase. Okay. There was just a, a transition towards, um, I want to do this too. Okay. And, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, second thing. So, what was your, going back in your life, what was your first creative moment? Uh, I don't know. The, the thing that comes to mind um, was not my first, obviously, because it was in year seven. So our first year of high school, but okay. it'd be middle school otherwise. Um, and we had to do these assignments that were usually, I think the first one was something about, it was like, yeah, the theme was, you know, Dracula's castle or something. And you had to write a poem and a short story and draw a picture or something. And, and I don't know why I did this, but it's like, I was doing a lot of stuff in the in the woodshed. It's like I'm gonna I'm gonna present this assignment, which would otherwise just be on pieces of paper, in a wooden coffin. Oh. And so I made a small wooden coffin about uh, sixteen inches long, and then I drew a picture of Dracula, and I cut all of the sheets to fit within the wooden coffin, so have all of the different pieces of whatever was required for the assignment on this on this thing and I brought it into school and handed it to the thing it was probably like four inches high like 16 inches long so it was a sizable thing gave it to my teacher and I think he just like had a, sh <laughs> a disbelieving sort of shock moment like the hell is this and um, but he was very encouraging so he gave me I think it was like he gave me a 60 out of 50 oh. for the project <laughs> right? it meant nothing at the time yeah. other than you know well done and then, but it, it sparked something. So then the next round of assignments, a whole bunch of people did things that were three-dimensional in some way, or like it wasn't just the, here's my folder of the things I did. Um, I think one was on Egypt and I, I built an urn and, and, and spark, I, I think I had the paper, you know, did the classic, spilled coffee on it and burnt the edges so it looked like old papyrus yeah. and then rolled it up and put it in the urn and, and gave it to him. Um, and it became a little bit competitive with other people in the class. Like, yeah, it's going to come out yeah. the most outlandish way to hand in an assignment. Um, we had to, at one point, build a board game. So it was, you know... That's, that's fast. That's an entire... We're not going down this road. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like that... Because that, there was like a... In there was a question about, like, technology and, like, how... Like, whether or not you feel like technology is a distraction or not. But in there was, like, an, was a question about whether or not you feel like creativity is like a muscle and that once you use it, it helps you be more creative and, and, and down the road. But we're not going down that, that, down that, down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, all right, last question. So I play out this podcast with a song. What song do you want to have this podcast go out with? All right, Luke, when you get the beer, I want to try some of it. Um, <laughs> thank you for your time. Thank you for doing this for me. I really appreciate it. Thanks. That was fun. All right, that's it. Bye. <laughs> See ya. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that.